Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of today and for the incredible weather we've had the last two days, for the food that we've experienced, for the drink, for the conversations, for the laughter, for the questions, for the intense raw emotions like the class I just uh, was a part of an hour ago. God, thank you for every person in this room. I pray that maybe I could say one thing that makes a difference or opens up our imagination to your power at work in the world. God, for the wounds and the scars that are represented in this room, I pray that this week is a week of healing. It's a week of truth-telling. That it's a week of us through the power of your Spirit, participating in the renewal of all things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So yesterday, um, Michael, how you doing, man? So yesterday, I talked a lot about faith and science without saying faith and science. Um, And I talked about this gulf, at least as I've experienced it in my life, particularly among men, but I think it's true of a lot of people that we get exposed to the bigness of creation in the universe, the mystery of our own existence. And we have these experiences, whether it's a sunset or the birth of a baby or just something that is mind-blowing. You, you fall in love and, and that wedding day. And then you have these other mundane experiences of trying to live out the actual implications and teachings of Jesus. And you're just like, how did we go from marveling at the galaxy and those psalm passages that we heard yesterday to we're following this Jewish rabbi who asks a lot of us to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us, to turn the other cheek, to be serious about lust and money and finances and greed and not to give our allegiance to Caesar. Like, can we just go back over here and just wonder at the marvel of creation? And a lot of people who, it's oftentimes when people walk away, they're walking away for good reasons. Um, I know some people who quit Christianity for bad reasons, but a lot of people walk away for good reasons. And I don't, when I say good, I don't mean I agree. I mean I say I understand. I'm empathetic. Um, On my worst days, right, I would say yes, I could go that way. Um, So I want to give you a way of thinking about this paradox, which I said yesterday is the only way you can be sane. And one of the teachers of this is a Catholic a monk who's taken a vow of poverty in New Mexico named Richard Rohr. So if you want to read more about this, Richard Rohr is uh, as well-developed. There are other teachers, but he's probably the most popular one who's done it. And he calls this the cosmic Christ. So a few years ago, I got to sit in his school uh, in a circle with some friends, and we just sat for three hours, and we got to ask Rohr whatever we wanted to. Um, which it was a little bit like sitting with Yoda. And uh, like if Yoda believed in Jesus, you know, like. And it was just this incredible moment. But th- this was the first time I had heard him orally talk about cosmic Christ. So here's what he says about the New Testament. Here's one thing that he loves about the New Testament that most Americans don't want to deal with. He said there is a tension within the New Testament between the cosmic Christ and the Jesus of Nazareth. Now, for those of you who have done any kind of reading in theology, this is not the old arguments over conservative Jesus versus liberal Jesus in the, in the big use of the word conservative and liberal. Um, this is something different. Here's what he says. You have Jesus of Nazareth in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who is incredibly human, compassionate, right? He cries, he hungers, 
Uh, he gets frustrated. He gets fatigued. He gets exhausted. And he says, but if you continue to read the New Testament, there's also an exaltation that happens, like in Philippians chapter 2 or Colossians chapter 1, in which Jesus is no longer just the Jesus of Nazareth, but now he's the cosmic Christ. Okay, so it sounds very big and abstract and ethereal, but think about it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, human Jesus, compassionate Jesus, right? His healings aren't just to prove his divinity. His healings are to show what kind of human kingdom of God he's trying to create and what the future is going to look like. So it's incredibly human. And then in Colossians, one snapshot, Paul says this about Jesus. He holds all of creation together. Right? In echoing John 1, you can hear that language of all things have been made through him. Nothing that was made was made without him. Um, and then he goes on to talk about how the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus and the resurrection, is God's definitive stamp or proof that Jesus is the most powerful force that holds not just human salvation together, but Paul's vision is much bigger than just saving you or saving you or saving you from hell or saving me from hell. But he says that Jesus' somehow mysterious presence as it's unleashed in the ascension is the glue, it's the material, it's the stuff, the essence that holds the whole universe together. It's like, okay, the first three Gospels gave us enough to chew on. Now Paul is saying he holds the whole thing together. Jesus of Nazareth, cosmic Christ. Um, we, we watched that incredible clip yesterday of the team of people out in the desert in Arizona who were creating that model of the Milky Way. And I couldn't help but thinking of one of our first astronauts um, when they landed on the moon. The first thing that they did is they chose to receive the Eucharist. The very first act of an American astronaut on the moon was to receive the Eucharist. Jesus of Nazareth, Cosmic Christ. Right there. Um, so, I want to um, share with you some things that I've been wrestling with. And um, I don't, when I come to these kind of conferences, everyone does this differently. There's no wrong way to do it. But when I come to these conferences, I don't take stuff that I've done before and like just, you know, here's a Snickers bar and like here's a package manufacturer. I'm just kind of working out things that I read about and think about and, and experiencing. And I like doing that in these contexts because most of the people who come to these kind of gatherings are pretty open, thoughtful people. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here on a Friday afternoon at 3.23, right? Okay, at least that's what the story I'm going with in this moment right now. Um, okay, this is a Bible question. Why did Jesus wait until he was 30 years old to launch his public ministry? There's no wrong answer. Why did Jesus wait until he was 30 years old to launch his public ministry? Sir? That was the right time. Okay, it was the right time. <coughs> okay, good. So we got, we got the theological read. We got the sociocultural read. I like this. We got some liberal arts educated people in this room. A good mama points out that his mama told him it was his time. 
John had prepared the soil for the right time. Good. So you brought in some textual with the theological. These are all really good. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Um, if, if case you didn't hear that, what's your name? Jan just said he needed more time to kind of experience humanity. Because this is perplexing about the New Testament. From the age of 12 to the age of 30, we know nothing about Jesus. Uh, I'm talking about in the traditional text that we have of the New Testament, right? Um, there are some other texts that maybe suggest some other things. But in the received text that we have, Catholics and Protestants in our Bible, we know nothing. So maybe he's being schooled in human experience and, and compassion. So I've just, I just mentioned I've uh, been in Israel recently. Um, it's one of my favorite places to be in the world. There's just, I don't know, how many of you have had the chance to be in Israel or Palestine? And first of all, it's one of the weirdest places in the world. You cannot explain it to somebody else. And it, in some ways, that has nothing to do with the New Testament Bible teaching side. I mean, just where Israel and Palestine is right now as a country, nation, state, and the, the cultural chaos, right? That you just get off the plane and you're in it. And you're there, you're just drinking it in for two weeks. So I'm with a Jewish friend of mine. His name is Ronnie Cohen. And he asks me the question I just asked you. And I, not as eloquently as some of you did, but I stumbled for about 20 minutes giving those answers. And he said, those are all really good answers, but they're not quite right. So I'm thinking in that moment, this is the whole reason I've come to Israel. <laughs> right? I didn't know it. He said this. He said some, um, some sociologists of the first century believe that there was a custom, maybe not even so much rabbinical law, but a custom that if your father dies and you are the oldest son, you know where I'm going with this? You are responsible to care for your family until the age of 30. We don't know if Joseph died when Jesus was a teenager, but we know this. If the Gospels are a Broadway play, he exits stage right very quickly. Right? Mary is the only parental presence after that account in Luke chapter 2 where, where we get this fast forward, Jesus is young, he's 12, oh, he blows everyone's mind, who's this guy, blah, blah. And then, thank you, Joseph, you've done your part. That's the New Living Translation. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. The, yeah, the thought is, culturally speaking, he probably would have been much older than Mary. So it is feasible that um, he died a natural death, or he, the older you get, the more susceptible you are. So, I want you to think about this in the context of um, what you pointed out about his mama. They're in Cana, in Galilee. And there's a wedding. What happens at the wedding? They run out of Welch's grape juice, as it was explained to me, because they had factories in the first century that could make Welch's grape juice. I really had someone try to argue that point with me one time. Like, at first I was like, are we on candid camera? Like, is this guy serious? Like, my friend put you up to this, didn't he? Like, my roommate. He... No, he really believed it was Welch's grape juice. Okay. They run out, 
this is a potentially embarrassing moment, right? You guys have no business throwing this wedding. You can't even take care of, you can't even receive us. You can't even practice hospitality. And Jesus' mama says what to whom? Help me. And, and Jesus says, like, hey, yeah, maybe, maybe we should like talk about this before you just volunteer my, my miracle services. And then she says, now nah, he, he's got this. So the idea in the Jewish custom or the Jewish tradition is she's not just saying, hey, save these people from embarrassment. What she's saying is, Jesus, you have fulfilled your obligation to your family. Because all of his friends were married by that time, right? Maybe even James, who that's the first person I want to talk to in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul, you guys can talk to Paul. Peter, I'll get to him later. I want to talk to James, because for that guy to believe, to me, is the most incredible thing in the New Testament, right? My brother won't even acknowledge anything good I've done in my life. And James was like, you know what, guys? He really was raised from the dead. <laughs> like, who says that about their brother, right? Um, so, when Mary at the wedding in Cana says, Jesus, it's time. She is, at one moment, rescuing these people from embarrassment. And she is telling Jesus, you have fulfilled your obligation to your biological family. And I didn't raise you for nothing. And I haven't forgotten those dreams from the angels. And I haven't forgotten what Zachariah said and what Simeon said and what Anna said. I haven't forgotten. Don't you dare waste all that. Now you go and you create a new spiritual family because you've taken care of your biological family. It's beautiful, right? Now, it gets even better. In the Gospel of John. By the way, I'm going to show my hand here. The greatest argument for gender inclusion in the church is in the Gospels. And we go to Paul. Forget Paul for a minute, right? Like Jesus... The greatest argument for gender inclusion is in the Gospels. The Gospels were written to churches. Well, they're just telling the story of Jesus. Okay, if that makes you feel better. When Jesus is being crucified in John's Gospel, John is very specific about the male-to-female ratio of faithful disciples at the very end. And they're all named Mary. It's like five to one, right? You've got one guy and a bunch of women. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, I believe only John records this. Jesus says, woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. What's he doing? He's finishing what happened in Canaan of Galilee. Mom, you released me to do the kingdom of God mission that I was sent to do, to leave my earthly family to create this new spiritual family. Right? And in John, he says to his disciples, you'll do even greater things than these. I think he could have imagined two and a half billion people 2,000 years who reap the benefits of this thing. But then at the very end, he's saying to his mama, I haven't forgotten about you. Because they have some tension in the Gospels, right? If you read carefully, like it's not all, oh, that's my boy. It's not all that. 
he's saying to John, okay, she still doesn't have a husband. <laughs> and maybe, this is pure speculation now, and maybe he knows what James is about to endure. So would you check in on him? Um, to me, the reason that is so beautiful is it shows, um, it demonstrates what I tried to highlight yesterday, that for many of us who grew up in conservative evangelical churches, Baptist, Nazarene, Church of Christ, for which I am most thankful for and I wouldn't trade, we were so schooled in the divinity of Jesus that it's, it's almost like, uh, it's like trying to walk on one leg. Like we don't have both legs. We don't know what to do with the humanity of Jesus. And we have so emphasized the otherness of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the, like proving his divinity that we, we fail to really think about the fact that Jesus was from Nazareth. The most aggressive estimates suggest that Nazareth had 400 or 450 people in the first century. Um, this last time I was in Nazareth, they suggest that there were less than 75 people. Now it was next to this huge city, Sephoris or Sepphoris, um, where Jesus probably worked with his dad going back and forth as a day laborer or contractor. Um, but it's out of the soil of Israel, like the humanity. Jesus never got to leave that. He never got to like shed it. He wasn't pretending to be human or posturing to be human, um, as the Quran seems to suggest. Um, and I, I think that has real implications for us. So just a couple of things. Um, just a couple of things that go with this. So when Mary releases Jesus in the wedding in Cana, um, she is saying, go. Do this thing called the gospel. Do this thing called the kingdom of God. Don't look back. This is what you were created for. And this is why Jesus launches a prophetic, pastoral, personal, public, eschatological, charismatic, authoritative movement. And I'm going to unpack these. When I say prophetic, I don't mean he was predicting the future, although he did a little bit of that with the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, he was prophetic in the sense of Amos and Jeremiah. He could speak searingly to right now. Um, back to the gender inclusion thing. <laughs> Philip's daughters are what? In the New Testament. What are they called? Yeah. And I've heard so many people explain that away. Like, well, they were just speaking about the future of God. That's not what it means in the book of Acts. It means to preach. It means to talk about the things of God for the people of God right now. That's the most simple definition based on all the prophets of the Old Testament. And then we get to Philip's daughters and we're like, whoa! Um, obviously pastoral towards people who were broken. Personal seeing people one-on-one. -on -one. Public, he was not afraid to embarrass himself or do things publicly. Um, so, I'm saying all of this to say, uh, in the, the teaching that I do, I teach at Lipscomb University, and in the fall I teach the story of Jesus, and in the spring I teach the story of the church. And what's incredible to me um, are the questions that students bring now that they didn't even bring 10 years ago. 
And I'm not saying no students brought them 10 years ago. I'm saying like in a class, like let's say this fall, I'll have 70 or 80 students in the story of Jesus. 40 or 50 of the students I will have will be wrestling with questions that 10 years ago, five or 10 in a class that size were wrestling with. Does that make sense? And it all comes back to this tension or this paradox that I started describing yesterday of the mystery of our own existence. How did we get here? Who can explain it, right? With we're following Jesus of Nazareth, this rabbi prophet from Israel, Palestine in the first century. And the most helpful thing that I have found um, is a, a, a outside of the New Testament. The most f- helpful thing I have found comes from John Ortberg, who wrote a great book called Who Is This Man? Are any of you familiar with this book called Who Is This Man? Okay, so John Ortberg, San Francisco, well-known pastor, writer. He's written some really good books. But he wrote a book called Who Is This Man? And here's the whole premise of the book. I think it's a, just a brilliant book. He says, if you ranked the most important 100 human beings who have ever lived on planet Earth, which that would be a fun list to argue about, right? Um, does Bono make the list? I think he's in the high 80s. Um, LeBron? Maybe. Mother Teresa? Definitely. Now it starts to get interesting, right? Albert Einstein? Probably. But here's what he argues. If you could figure out Confucius, Napoleon, Genghis Khan, I'm just, you know what I'm saying. The people who have shaped the events of human history, Alexander the Great, um, Oprah. Does she make the list? I guess your list says more about you than anything else, right? I need to stop talking and let you guys tell me your list. He, he makes the argument that most historians, regardless of religious commitments, would rank Jesus at the very top. But here's where he pushes this and takes a sociological approach to understanding the Gospels. He says, if you took two through a hundred and added them all up, they still don't even come close to equaling or rivaling the impact that Jesus has had on the history of human civilization. Now guess who gets really interested in that kind of argument? The person I was describing yesterday who says, I can believe in, but to go to church every Sunday and subject my kids to the politics of church. Like, that's a giant. This person, who for good reason has serious faith struggle, comes along and either reads the Ortberg book or hears someone do that in a narrative oral form and says, tell me more about that. And then you can start to point out um, the treatment of women in Western civilization. Ortberg argues, goes back to Luke 8. Have you ever read Luke 8 carefully? I'm not, I'm not one of those who's like, I'll throw out a scripture and be like, ah, I'm not trying to do that. Who are the, do you know the women who are listed in Luke 8? We know the disciples, right? They, most of them become the apostles. But, but it says in Luke 8, Jesus has this, also this group of women who travel with him. Do you remember who's listed in this? Mary of Magdala, we would call her. 
Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Chudza, do you remember this? Who is listed as manager of Herod's household. I asked a, a New Testament scholar, what does that mean? He said, the chief of staff. Okay, that's interesting. And then um, Susanna, who I believe is a hapoxagoma. It's the only time her name is mentioned in the, in the Gospels, if I remember correctly. I don't think we know anything about Susanna. Okay, so let's go back to Joanna. Check this out. This is in your Bible. <laughs> this is Luke 8. This is one of those moments where you're going to be like, who put that in there? Who snuck this in there? If Herod is the wealthiest person in that part of the Roman Empire, he needs someone to manage his affairs, his schedule, his finance, and his agenda. Right? If you've ever been to, those of you who've been to Israel, if you've been to Caesarea, that's where you... Caesarea is like the Malibu of Israel. Like, it's this incredible location. But that's where you realize the clout and the authority that Herod has. So if Herod needs someone to manage it, and according to Luke 8, it's Chudza, C-H-U-Z-A, is how we would transliterate it into English. What Luke is saying is that Herod's chief of staff is married to someone who is more interested in being with Jesus in Galilee and Nazareth than back in Caesarea having all the fancy banquets and balls and parties and what all the richest people in that part of the world do. She finds Jesus more compelling than she does the most powerful, the second most powerful man in, the, in that part of the world next to Caesar. And then you start to think about it some more, and you let it roll over you, and you think, wait a second, who pays Hudza's salary? His boss. So Herod, out of immense taxation, right, is taking part of his wealth to pay his chief of staff, just, just like we do today, and his wife is using part of that money to do what? To fund Jesus. And Luke is so slick with this. Between Luke 8 and I believe Luke 14, there's two other references of Herod and Jesus. The first is, uh, bring this Jesus to me. Is this John the Baptist coming back from the dead? Bring, bring Jesus to me. I'm interested in this guy. I want to inquire of him is how one translation reads it which we know from the birth story, don't trust any of those dudes, right? We can't trust his daddy, his granddaddy. You can't trust any of those guys. But then there's an outright rivalry as Luke unfolds where Jesus refers to Herod as a fox, which is not a compliment in the first century. And that is supposed to be a clear signal that there are these people who are starting to understand as the Gospel of Luke unfolds that there are different ways to be human. And the chief of staff is married to someone who finds Jesus' way of being human more compelling than Herod, who no doubt she has been around several times. So, this is my plea. We have to allow the humanity to be back into the way that we describe the story of Jesus. 
Ortberg's thesis is that um, Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, in their inception, do not happen without the influence of Jesus. He argues, pretty convincingly, democracy as we know it. Now, don't just think of capitalism in America. We're talking about global democracy. Democracy as we know it does not happen without the influence of Jesus. He argues convincingly, leprosoriums do not happen without the influence of Jesus in the world. He argues, as um, a Yale religious sociologist, Stark, uh, Rodney Stark argues in his book, The Rise of Christianity, he argues that one of the reasons Christianity becomes compelling to people in the Roman citizens in the second and third century is because Christians are willing to do things that no one else in the Roman Empire is willing to do. You have a kid with Down syndrome, as we would call it now. Well, abort that kid, or let, let that kid fend for itself. Give that kid up to someone else. And who in the Roman Empire said, oh, no, 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 we'll take him. And Ortberg argues, we have all of these incredible things in Western society and global society today that all trace their roots back to the prophetic, charismatic, human, courageous kingdom of God as embodied in Jesus of Nazareth. And if you took the other most influential 99 humans who have done incredible things, Martin Luther King would certainly be on that list, right? And you added up all of those 99 people, they still don't come close to impacting society as much as Jesus of Nazareth did. What I'm saying is we have worked so hard to go through the divinity route to get some people to believe. I think we now live in a time where we step back and we say, sometimes you can't walk in the front door. And the back door has been open the entire time to say, do you love humanity? Do you find humans fascinating? I do. Um, do you find human experience mysterious, beautiful, perplexing, frustrating, awesome, incredible, all at the same time? I do. And let me tell you about the human impact Jesus has had on planet Earth. And then you start the conversation of getting people to appreciate the entire gospel narrative. Because when you try to prove the divinity of Jesus all the time, and I'm saying it's so laced into the very way we think about it, we don't even know we're doing it. The only two places you really can start when you go that approach in the Gospels is the virgin birth and the resurrection. And those are two great places to start. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to remove those from the story, but what I want to say is, what about all the stuff in between? Right? If the virgin birth and the resurrection is like the bread, I'm like, what about the sandwich in between, like what about, what about like 80% of the whole story? And by coming in through the humanity of Jesus, the rawness of Jesus, um, it, it just makes for a, a completely different experience. Okay, I have a few minutes to, uh, if you have comments, snide remarks, <laughs> accusations of heresy, observations, what do you, I mean, we can go back to Mary releasing Jesus. Is that the first time you've ever heard that uh, explanation? I mean, it's only three weeks old in my mind, so I'm still like, hmm. But it did come from a Jewish man named Cohen, which means high priest, so you've got to kind of take it seriously. <laughs> you've got to take it seriously. 
Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 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 If if you and I were just at Starbucks and you asked me that question, the first thing I would say is, first, tell me about your family. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that to you in front of strangers. Because um, I always, when, when anybody, at, but especially my students at Lipscomb, when they ask me that, I always, first, I'm thinking about family systems, family systems. Um, yeah, this is really interesting. So I live in the part of the country where Christian radio is a big deal, and um, I don't do Christian radio. Um, my wife does. I don't. Like, I can't. I just can't. It's like a Thomas Kincaid paint. I just can't. Um, it's like Baskin Robbins. I, I just can't do it. So in the Christian radio culture of, uh, and they had this even where I grew up in Detroit, there was Christian radio was part of the culture there, but they have this tagline and I've heard it all over the country. They must all get together like at a conference. I'm gonna answer your question, I promise. But they use this tagline, you should listen to Christian radio because it's safe for the whole family. And every time I hear that, first I throw up in my own mouth. <laughs> But I, I think, how far are we removed from the literal words of Jesus in Luke? And I think, um, to your specific point, or specific question as I heard it, I think Jesus understood that the kind of human he was choosing to be from the temptation story, the baptism and t temptation story in Luke 3 and 4, I think he understood that his vision of the kingdom of God, specifically what it meant to be the human Messiah, was so radically different than what they were hoping for. They wanted the divine warrior king, right? That he knew it was going to rip every allegiance that existed. It was going to rip apart every allegiance that existed within first century Jewish culture. Because Judaism is an ethnicity and a religion. That's hard for Gentiles to understand, right? It was going to tear open everything that was holding the first century together, first century Israel-Palestine. And I think he was speaking in strong terms to say, you may have to come to a point where you choose. I, I mean, I, I can think of a very tangible example of this, of a young man who now lives in Southern California, whose parents were both agnostic, and when he came to, a, I would call it a radical conversion of Jesus, they basically said, you got to choose. And he said, I choose Jesus. Um, we could do comparative religion when, when a, a Muslim becomes a follower of Jesus or a Jewish person becomes a Jewish believer or whatever. Um, but I, I think he understood how sensitive the implications of what he was teaching, the threat it was, to everything that was kosher and orthodox in the first century, that he used the strongest speech language when it came to the family. Um, I mean, all right, I'm just going to go there. One of the hardest things to adjust to in Southern culture, because I'm not from the South, I love it, I love living in Nashville, but I'm not from the South. Um, family is the most important thing in Southern culture. And that's awesome and it's terrible. And I don't, know, I don't even know how to explain it to people other than you just got to breathe that air for a while to really understand it. So I think those kind of words for Jesus might actually even be 
more prophetic in a southern context where family is, uh, it's an idol. Having children, it's idolatry. You got, you know, part of that's America, but it's unique. It's like on steroids in the South. And I think Jesus would say that in the South today. You might actually have to separate from your Christian family to be a authentic. You may have to do things that challenge or threaten your Christian value, Christian family, in order to be authentically true to the kingdom of God. Yeah. And then the preacher waits to see if there's an elder meeting that Sunday night to see how the elder... <laughs> I think that's what's going on. Yeah. So, what's the story about 84 to 30? What's your take on that? What's your name again? <laughs> I think Luke says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. And um, I know the word evolution is a loaded word. I think Jesus grew into his understanding of who he was. I think he got glimpses. I don't think when he hit puberty, all of a sudden he was like, let's do this. I don't. I just don't think it's true. And I, I think he's, being, he's soaking in people's experiences. I think he's studying the Torah. I think he is devout. I think he's working. I mean, we forget he was you know, just right above poverty. So he's... Um, but man, would it be great to know more about those missing 18 years. Would that not make the best Netflix documentary ever? Like if we actually knew? Like from the Qumran caves, we have these new manuscripts that tell us from age 12. To, yeah. Because, yeah, I think he grew into it. But I, 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 I like how you said that. Yes, sir. Yeah. But I heard this week from more than one speaker say that it wasn't necessarily his divinity, it was his humanity that was in the spirit. It was the spirit doing it. Uh, and, and I never thought of it that way. Yeah. And so I, I guess my first question is what's your take on that? And if your take is that he was doing divine works as a human through the power of the spirit, yeah. what's the purpose of his divinity in his ministry then other than to say I'm the son of God? Yeah. So before, before I forget to say this, um, there's a great book by N.T. Wright called The Challenge of Jesus. The Challenge of Jesus. And that's a major, uh, that he, he's a master. Um, and that's all I have. No. I'm, I'm <laughs> okay, here's what I think, and I might be wrong. Um, I think some of it's semantics, and I think some of it is we're saying the same thing. Trinity, he needs the Spirit. It is clear in Luke. The Spirit is involved from the very beginning. If you start in Luke 1, the, the birth happens through the power of this, this, the Holy Spirit. And on and on, Jesus is tapping into the power of the Spirit. It's clear just from a narrative reading of Luke, right? But here's what I think is going on in terms of the theology. So, and this is very hard for Westerners to think about, okay? So I'm going to talk a little bit about quantum physics and science and time travel, and I'm not a Star Trek nerd, but I might just get on the edge of that, ready? So past, present, future, we're all familiar with. Um, and the reason we love some songs is because it takes us to past moments. And you can literally transport your soul back to like your high school prom if you hear a particular song. And then you may be like, oh, no, I don't want to, I don't want to think about that guy. Um, 
but we are past, present, future beings. I would argue that's what separates us from the aardvark and the giraffe, um, is we are acutely aware of our past. And some of us spend our whole lives trying to get out of our past. And we also have great anxiety about the future. So what's really a curse of being a human is we have these incredible things happening around us all the time in the present, but we're, so, we're slaves to the past and slaves to the future. So this is what I think is happening regarding the miracles. And I hope this helps. I don't think it'll answer exactly, but I hope this reframes it. When Jesus is, becomes God incarnate in the first century, he's not coming from the book of Genesis, right? He's actually coming from the future. Now, this is a big deal. Because when we receive communion in the Church of Christ and in the Baptist Church, in the Nazarene Church, it, there are very few things that drive me crazy. But all we talk about when we receive communion is the past. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. Right? So you got all these people who pulled shade on Saturday night and they feel guilty about it, and so they just reflect on the past. In the Gospels, the Eucharist is not just about the past. It's about the future. For instance, we've been in Luke. Let's stay in Luke. When Jesus is instituting the Supper in Luke, Jesus says, I will not eat of this again until the fullness of the kingdom of God, the future, finally is made revealed to the whole world. Okay? So, when Jesus becomes a Jew in the first century and starts talking about all the things he talks about and heals all these people... He steps into the present as a sign from the future. So essentially what he's saying is, do you want to know what your future is going to look like? And you want to know what your future is going to look like? And you want to know what your future is going to look like? This is what heaven looks like when it invades the current era or order. This is why the Lord's Prayer is central in the Gospel of Matthew, that we would pray that the things of God would be true on earth, as they are in heaven. For a Jew in the first century, heaven was not a celestial location. Like if you could go to the North Pole and then go a little bit further, there you find heaven. Like in terms of a stacked view of existence, right? Heaven was a realm or a dimension. So that's what I'm talking about past, present, future. Time is a realm or dimension. So when Jesus steps in, it's, it's not just to prove his divinity or his status as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, by the way, I love talking about this kind of stuff. I know some people, their minds are like, Bleh. I want a cartoon now. Please, someone turn on a cartoon. But when he steps into the present, he's not just proving his divinity. He's, he's giving a glimpse to the first century world. of, and The reason Jesus can heal in the first century is because there is no sickness in heaven. The reason he cares about demonic possession and releasing people from that is because demonic possession has no place in the new heavens and the new earth. But when you're steeped in a view of heaven, which is basically your soul goes to this cloud, and if you're in the acapella section, right, you do acapella, if you're in the instrumental, you get a harp. If that's your view of heaven, then Jesus' kingdom of God stuff makes no sense. But if your view of God is a resurrect, the view of heaven is a resurrected body, the new Jerusalem, it might look like Malibu. It certainly is, you know, it's not going to look like Abilene, right? <laughs> but if, if your view is embodied, if it's flesh, if it's material, if it's resurrection, then Jesus' healings become about a preview or showing the rest of the world, like, this is what's coming, right? 
one of my friends says, like Oprah, and you get a body, and you get a body, and you get a body. And so I think first grade is proving his divinity. I think high school, like in terms of the maturation of understanding what he's doing, high school is, oh, he's giving us a glimpse of the world that's on its way. And when God raises him, that's God's vindication of saying, my boy wasn't lying. He tells the truth. He's the one. Does that make sense? Challenge of Jesus. Great. Great book. Okay. I'm about to head to the airport. And I just realized I have two friends here that I didn't even realize were here all week. Isn't that fun? Okay. Thank you guys for being here late on a Friday afternoon.